Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Katie Mingle. You'll hear our weekly radio show, Resound Here, as well as the occasional story curated recently from our audio library at thirdcoastfestival.org. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit organization whose livelihood depends in part on support from listeners like you. To find out how you can help or to check out all of the cool stuff we do apart from our radio show, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. As you lie there and listen to my voice, you know that I am your friend, and so you can rest now. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Dreams are not a matter of chance, but are associated with conscious thoughts and problems. I actually had a dream last night that I killed my father. <laughs> Isn't that Isn't crazy? crazy? <laughs> you will listen to my voice. And you will remember everything I say. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio dreamscapes we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. If a dreamer is encouraged to go on talking about his dream images... She had a red sweater and black hair... Large eyes, small heart face. I knew I could hear her breath. He will give himself away and reveal the unconscious background of his ailments. Dreams make your sleeping time happy. To me, there is nothing better than lying in bed at the end of a long day, curling up under some warm blankets and slipping ever so gently from that drowsy, cozy state of awareness to the hazy, fluid world of dreams. Once in dreamland, of course, it's a no-holds-barred, crazy world of funhouse images. My sister suddenly turns into a lion tamer. My bed, an ocean liner. Dreams, so often interpreted but so little understood, are one of the great mysteries of the brain. I think the dreams is like a small art piece, you know. In the dream, everything's possible. Today on ReSound, we explore dreams and dreamers of all kinds. Lucid, fictional, public, and elusive. Stay tuned. Dreams are intensely personal, but we all dream, so might there be an aspect of dreaming that is in fact communal? Artist Marina Abramovich believes there is. And to illustrate her point, in 2005, she created an installation in the Rose Museum in Boston and then invited people to sleep in it. Skeptical producer Sean Cole tried for 40 winks. Check one, two, three. I'm worried that I'm going to get to the museum and that I'm not going to dream anything. Moreover, what if I, I can't even fall asleep so we'll see what happens I recorded that around midnight the night before I got into the dream bed then I went to sleep and dreamt nothing not that I remember the next day I went over to the museum still worrying 
Curator Rafaela Plato did her best to be sympathetic. I wish I could take the pressure off of you. I can only tell you, try to relax. If you don't sleep, you don't sleep. But maybe you will, you know, daydream a little bit. Or Does that count? Yeah, I'm sure it does. We all dream in one way or another, Plato says, which is the point of the exhibit, that the dream world is communal and that there's a blurrier border between waking and dreaming than we might think. Abramovich's dream bed is just one angle on those ideas. Plato also showed me a room with 200 red silk lanterns hanging from the ceiling, shaped like stars and missiles and TVs and laptops, a dreamtime take on the clash between communism and capitalism in China. She says artists and dream researchers alike are moving away from the Freudian idea of dreams. From um, the notion that dreams represent internal truth only. They are also mirrors of societies and of political, social and cultural events that happen around us. One piece features a distorted recording of George W. Bush talking about the Abu Ghraib scandal. The sound is straight out of a nightmare. In the room next to that piece is the dream bed. It's really more of a no-frills coffin without a lid. Where the pillow should be is a block of snowflake obsidian crystal, which is supposed to prevent nightmares. An assistant named Nadia was there to help me into my jammies. A puffy, feather-stuffed jumpsuit, complete with a hood, mittens, and booties. So you get the jumpsuit, you get headphones, and glasses. Headphones like you wear on a shooting range. The glasses are totally opaque. The jumpsuits actually have magnets sewn into them, which Abramovich believes will increase blood flow to the brain. Still, there was something distinctly Big Bird about the whole affair. It's like I'm getting into a big Muppet costume. So let's lead you to the bed. Gingerly, I climbed into the dream bed, the box, and lay my head on the block of obsidian. The jumpsuit was warm, like being hugged all over by soft rabbits. I spent the first several minutes fidgeting, trying to get as comfortable as possible. I could still hear the drone of the bush speech through my headphones. Suddenly, I was an illustration of the idea that dreams are linked with the outside world. I mean, here I was attempting to dream in a public space. People may have even been coming and going as I lay there. It's really more of a happening than an installation. Marina Abramovich says the exhibit isn't the bed. It's the dreams themselves. I think the dreams is like a small art piece, you know. In the dream, everything's possible. You, you know, you can in one second be in Hong Kong and another second in, in the moon, you know. And in a way, you have to be more conscious about that, to share with other people an experience. Abramovich told me that the dream bed is just part of a larger project, an entire dream house she built in Japan. People sleep there overnight and record their dreams in a dream book the next morning. Abramovich plans to collect 50 or 60 of the books into a public dream library. Of course, dreaming is a lot easier when you have a whole night to work at it in a private room, whereas I was just lying in the middle of a museum exhibit. After a while, though, my mind started to drift, and I thought I heard voices. And then I began to discern a long, low, rumbling sound, like an engine idling in both of my ears. It took a moment to figure out what it was. It was me. I was snoring. When the hour was up, Nadia tapped me awake and I walked back into the dressing room and scribbled a few lines in the diary. Something like, I was really self-conscious lying down, I didn't think I would fall asleep, eventually I woke up snoring, etc., etc. It read like a treatment for a Woody Allen movie, especially compared to this one dream I found in the book. From time to time, I was visited by a small girl. She had cool hands on my sweaty hands. She looked... And looked, and looked at me. At me. She had a red sweater a red and black sweater hair, and large hair, eyes, small eyes, heart face. Small. I knew I could hear her breath. Once I thought she showed me a white bed. This is Mary Novotny so Jones, a performance artist. She actually teaches Marina Abramovich's work to college students in Boston. She understood the communal idea of the piece right away, picturing the dreamers that went before her as she lay there. Did their feet fall to one side? Did anybody fill up the whole bed? Was anybody tall enough? Um, did anyone open their eyes under the glasses? So I was thinking about that, and, and that sort of helped me to find that kind of wonderful place where you're, you're sort of at the edge of deep sleep, and so you have a lot of visitations and images. Whereas I had a lot of nothing. But then when I went to bed that night, my bed, I did dream. A vivid dream that I was drafted into the military. 
I told Abramovich about it. Well, how do you explain that you remember that one? Well, see, that's the, that's what I was going to ask you. Was like, do you, I mean, do you think that sleeping in the dream bed has an effect Definitely. on your dreams Definitely, later? Definitely, because you see, you, you start being conscious once the mind starts working, and you kind of bridge to subconscious, and now and you could remember it. It's working, but you see, you don't even trust yourself. It's working. You should. <laughs> I thought the military dream might just be a one-off, but the next night I had an even more vivid dream that I was attacked by a vicious dog. I wrote the dreams down, and even though they were both nightmares, I found myself looking forward to the next one. It's like there were little ciphers, or as Abramovich said, little art pieces. I called her a few days later and told her how excited I was. She said, You're my best customer. Dream Bed was produced by Sean Cole for Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson. You can hear more of their stories about arts and culture at studio360.org. You don't have to do anything or go anywhere. Just close your eyes for a while and rest. Then nice dreams will come to you. If you don't know the work of Joe Frank, you're missing an entire swath of the storytelling landscape, and we are thrilled to introduce you to it. There is no one like him. His work is dark, unpredictable, and often hilarious. When Joe Frank turns his attention to a subject in his deep, mesmerizing baritone, you can be sure you are about to hear an original. Here, Joe weaves a narrative that's more like an M.C. Escher drawing than a traditional tale, which is why... We love it. Here's Dreamers. He lived in a poor Arab village. The main street was an unpaved dirt road. Water was brought in by truck three times a week, from which his family filled their plastic jugs. And the electricity, which ran the TVs, the lights, and the fans, was provided by local generators powered by gasoline. His father had lost both legs to an artillery shell in the 1967 war. Now confined to a wheelchair, he was a devout Muslim who decried the existence of Israel. At the local mosque, he called for attacks on Israeli towns and cities and extolled the bravery of Hamas fighters willing to risk their lives by murdering Jews. On the hill above the village, a new Israeli settlement was being built. So far, only a few concrete buildings with fortifications, surveillance outposts, and a perimeter of barbed wire. One day, a Hamas recruiter came to his school to enlist children as suicide bombers. Wishing to avenge his father, he began training. They wanted him to approach the new Israeli settlement dressed as a Hasidic student and blow himself up at the guard post. They fitted him with a vest with eight sticks of dynamite around which were ball bearings and nails, so that when he detonated the bomb, a cloud of shrapnel would explode outward, maiming and killing as many Israeli soldiers as possible. And so one morning, he found himself wearing a long black overcoat and a beaver hat, making his way up the road to the new settlement. He kept his eyes downcast and walked quickly, as though he was on an errand. When he heard a young Jewish soldier at the gate call out to him. Stop. Who are you? Where are you going? If you take one more step, I will be forced to shoot. His heart pounding and his body drenched with perspiration, he ignored the soldier's warning and continued moving forward, his thumb poised on the button that would detonate the bomb. When, suddenly, he woke up and realized he was not an Arab boy about to kill himself and murder others, but an Israeli soldier who'd fallen asleep at his post overlooking the very Arab village he just dreamt he was from. Born in the Orthodox Jewish community in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, he'd only recently come to Israel with his family. Now in the army, and no longer under the thumb of his strictly religious father, he had renounced his faith and become a secular Jew. The truth is that he had come to hate God. In his view, the deity was nothing more than a cruel and malicious old pervert. He imagined God pacing from room to room in his mansion in heaven, dreaming up new catastrophes on earth. African famine, 
genocide and pandemic disease were deeply satisfying to him. But his greatest achievement remained the Nazi death camps of the 1940s. Nevertheless, the future was full of promise with the proliferation of chemical, biological, and atomic weapons already being carried in the briefcases, backpacks, and heels of psychopathic religious killers. Yes, the future was rife with wonderfully hellish scenarios, and while God waited impatiently for them to unfold, he liked to keep things interesting with a plane crash, a forest fire, a ship lost at sea, a hostage crisis gone terribly wrong. If God were a resident on earth, he thought, he would be considered criminally insane. And now he was looking down the road at a young Hasidic student quickly approaching on foot, the same figure he'd imagined himself to be in his dream. And he called out, Stop! Who goes there? Who are you? Who are you visiting? What is your purpose? But the young Hasid didn't answer. And he called out again, If you do not stop, I will be forced to shoot. But even this warning did not deter the student, who continued to approach. And he called out again, One more step, and I will open fire. And the only thing that prevented him from doing so was his awareness of the existence of a deaf Hasid who lived in a nearby settlement, considered a saint on earth, one of Israel's most treasured scholars. From infancy, he'd been able to read the Talmud, and now, barely a teenager, he'd already written brilliant commentaries on Holy Scripture that raised profound questions rather than offer narrow, dogmatic answers. It was said that he was beyond religion. And so, either this deaf saint or a would-be suicide bomber wearing a kaftan and a beaver hat continued to approach unresponsive to the young soldier's warnings. And soon he would be close enough to hurl a grenade and to press the button on an exploding vest to blow up a bunker, allowing a small army of Arab assassins to come in and destroy the settlement. Now approaching the checkpoint at this very moment was the pastor of a church in Willow Cross, Mississippi. He was riding with his family in their Ford Explorer, They'd spent that afternoon at the Israeli settlement as guests of the chief rabbi there, where the pastor had enjoyed a wonderfully stimulating conversation with their host on the question, to whom is the Holy Land more sacred? The pastor spoke of his respect for the Jews insofar as they were the original people of the book. But this land, he argued, was where God's only son had been brought to Bethlehem, where, on Golgotha, Jesus had been crucified and resurrected three days later. This was where Jesus had walked among the people and preached and performed miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding the thousands with a single fish and a loaf of bread. This was where, at the Last Supper, he'd learned who would betray him and who would remain his disciples. So this was sacred and hallowed Christian ground. And now the pastor and his wife and son and daughter were riding down a road on their way out of the Israeli settlement, singing, My Bible for a Road Map, when they saw the young Hasid trudging toward the guard post. And as they approached him, the pastor experienced a blinding flash, then profound silence for what seemed like an eternity, and then the ear-splitting thunder of an explosion and he felt a rush of hurricane-like wind and could feel the car lifted high above the road and slowly spinning in the air in an arc through empty space. And his last thoughts were for his wife and two children. When he woke up and realized he'd been dreaming. He was at home in Mississippi. It was one of those warm, balmy summer nights he could hear the branches of the willow tree brushing against the side of the roof, the sound of a distant freight train, and a dog barking. The dream had been so terrifying that he found himself drenched with sweat, and yet, at the same time, felt chilled to the bone, his body trembling. He looked over and observed his wife sleeping, 
Then he saw the packed suitcases, the passports laid out on a table next to the American Express traveler's checks, and remembered they were about to fly to the Holy Land. He looked at the alarm clock, its glowing phosphorescent dial, reading 5.10, and knew that in a few minutes the alarm would go off because they had to be at the airport by 7. He rose from his bed and walked down the hall to the children's room and looked in at his son and daughter, who were sleeping, his little girl hugging her doll, his son sucking his thumb, his new baseball mitt on the floor beside his bed. Then he went downstairs, poured two fingers of Jack Daniels into a water glass, and drank it down. And he walked out onto the porch and listened to the crickets and the wind rustling the leaves of the willow tree. And he could not help but feel that his dream was a foreshadowing of what was to come, a tragic vision of the future. His family was excited about going to Palestine. For his wife, a devout Christian, this was the trip of a lifetime. This was where she would be able to touch the very soil upon which Jesus had walked. Then he heard the alarm clock ring and saw a light go on in the upstairs bedroom and then a dimmer light in the curtained hallway window and then another light in the children's bedroom and he heard the faint sound of a faucet being turned on and the excited voices of his children and a radio turned to bluegrass music. And he walked out onto the lawn and knelt and clasped his hands and looked up at the star-filled sky and asked God for guidance. But he heard nothing but the sound of the crickets and the wind and a distant freight train that was taking forever to pass. And seen from high above, the freight train was moving along a river beyond which was a fenced-off field in which horses were quietly standing and sleeping and barns and outbuildings and fields of cotton and a small town with a single main street leading to a courthouse square with a monument of a Confederate soldier on a pedestal with the names of the dead from the town and steepled churches and single and two-lane blacktops feeding into a larger interstate with steady traffic and then suburbs and feeder roads and shopping centers and malls and gas stations and used car lots and bridges over rivers leading into cities with their capital buildings and business districts and residential high-rises and hospitals and stadiums and concert halls, their lights still twinkling as dawn was creeping over the horizon and beyond that, enormous plains and great forests and huge river systems leading to the foothills of purple mountains that ran north and south. And beyond that, the sparkling expanse of deep blue oceans and the contours of Europe and Asia, where there was a light side and a dark side as the globe turned in the sunlight. And seen from even higher above and at a greater distance, the earth receding into a small stone in the firmament. And further back, our solar system disappearing into the Milky Way and further back yet into the darkness of the most profound silence imaginable in the endless, the unknowable, and the infinity of time and space without beginning or end. Dreamers was produced by Joe Frank. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Perhaps you are dreaming right now, dreaming that you are listening to a fantastic little radio show, a show that you love so much you want to shout it out. Don't be shy. When you wake up, let us know. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now you can have funny dreams or pretty dreams. You can have small dreams or big dreams. And all the time you are dreaming, you are safe. The dream world is one where anything is possible, except, of course, that we aren't actually in control of the possibilities. I mean, we can, for example, eat spaghetti on top of Mount Everest without so much as putting on a sweater, but wouldn't skiing down it be more fun? In other words, what if we could control our dreams and become lucid dreamers? Some people say they can, and YouTube is filled with instructional advice on how to achieve this state. Lucid dreaming is not without its doubters, however, who say that being aware while dreaming is just a moment of wakefulness. American producer Neva Grant explored this phenomenon while she was living in Australia. One of the first things lucid dreamers tell you is that it's a blast. If you can imagine just running as fast as you can and then thinking you can't go any faster, and then you do go faster and you're in the air and you feel everything. You feel the wind rushing, you feel that feeling in your gut. It is fun, yeah, because it's so incredibly vivid and there's so much light and detail and uh, you just feel on a high. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's euphoric, it's a happy experience. It's because you're flying, you know, who doesn't want to fly? So there comes this, like, this freedom, this exhilaration, so you can walk through walls, you can levitate things with just your mind. I acted out on sexual desires. You may be having sex with dream characters. That's a very popular thing in the beginning. So I suppose it's just exercising whatever you want to happen in an environment where there are no rules. Another way to think of lucid dreaming? Think of the sleeping brain suddenly catching a glimpse of itself in the mirror. What are you doing, it asks. What are you thinking? Oh, you're dreaming. Snap out of it. No, wait. Stay in it. So my first lucid dream was on the 6th of August, 2011. And lucid dreamers remember their first lucid dream the way you remember your first kiss. Here are two stories from Novan and Bianca. I'm with my TAFE class in a spacious white mansion. We're here for some excursion, but it feels like we'll be staying for a couple of days. I walk into an outdoor area when the older people are standing. Suddenly people, and it's the young people versus the old people, start insulting each other and fighting each other. There's a dispute between Sue and Amy. I join in and say, well, I'd rather look like Amy than look like Sue. And then I think, I'm swimming in an ocean and I will for a, a ship to appear. And I think, wow, fascinating, this, this works. There's a ship there. So I board the ship by climbing onto it. It's almost like a pirate ship with two masts, sails, a wooden deck. So I create a plank and I say, the plank is there now. Maybe I should jump off it. But as I jumped, I'm euphoric and I'm so excited that I wake myself up. I say, well, I'd rather look like Amy than look like Sue. And then I think, oh, I just, I realize what I said. Then I think it doesn't matter what we say because it's only a dream. Then I realize I'm dreaming. I start jumping up the stairs and I can jump as high as I want and I keep repeating as loud as I can, I'm having a lucid dream. It's almost a feeling, uh, um, 
Like if you're to walk out of an air-conditioned room into a warmer room, I'm dreaming. it's that obvious. I'm having a lucid dream. Wake up, darling. Wake up, darling. Wake up, darling. How to lucid dream. A lucid dream is one in which you become aware that you're dreaming, but you don't wake up. Although some people naturally have the ability to lucid dream, most have to learn and develop the technique. And we're about to hear from people who are doing exactly that, learning and developing their technique. And they have a lot of places to get advice. Hiya. Doing a video today on lucid dreaming for beginners. So right, the most basic thing, and it might seem obvious to people, but it is vital. Dream journal. You have to keep a dream journal. For some reason, when I'm lucid dreaming, I am the architect. I have this fascination with building castles, and I've found that recently I've created entire villages. So George Clooney is about to kiss you, and you feel like you're starting to wake up? Pretend to spin around in circles. This keeps the dream going 96% of the time. I know. You skeptics are already wondering, is this for real? I can't offer any wisdom on the George Clooney thing. But many brain experts do take lucid dreaming seriously. They study it in labs. They write papers about it. And they think they may know what's going on in your brain when you lucid dream. For many people, it's a very fragile state, at least initially. It's almost like a, like a soap bubble. It's like it's so, so tenuous that you're aware and yet you're, you're dreaming. Kelly Bulkley is an American scholar, and he's written books about dreaming. In most dreams, we seem to take it for what it is. Um, and in a lucid dream, the part of the brain that enables us to think, ah, I'm, here I am, I'm, I'm thinking about myself, uh, what researchers call an executive capacity to sort of reflect on ourselves, that part of the brain comes back online and we're able to realize, hey, I'm, I'm dreaming. Step one, prepare. The first step is to improve your ability to remember dreams and just generally make yourself more aware of your dreams. Start by telling yourself each night before you go to bed that you will have lucid dreams and that you will remember them in the morning. I will have lucid dreams and I will remember them in the morning. I will have lucid dreams and I will remember them in the morning. I will have lucid dreams and I will remember them in the morning. Personally, I am not a skeptic. I have had a few lucid dreams, but it was when I was younger. And I can tell you, it's like trying to catch a minnow in your bare hands, slippery and mysterious. That's true for a lot of beginners. I wanted to get better at it. So naturally, I joined a group. Thank you very much for turning up on such a beautiful day. The topic for today's meetup is um, how can we use lucid dreams for healing, for problem solving, and for inner guidance? A lucid and conscious dreaming group in Sydney. There are meetups like this all over the world, by the way. Yeah, I uh, personally use quite a lot a technique that is called the dream incubation. Have people heard about it? It's basically a very ancient technique that was used by ancient Egyptians. And all kinds of people show up. Students and businessmen, old-timers, new-agers, they all make me jealous. The gearbox had got completely out of order, and I was having a hell of a time trying to reassemble it. I went to bed. I had a lucid dream, a very lucid dream. The whole gearbox appeared in three dimensions, and it all moved, all the parts moved in all directions, and finally... They all came together. I instantly woke up at about three in the morning, drew the diagram, went back to bed, woke up in the morning, put the gearbox together. So that was true. Maybe you too have stumbled upon brilliant ideas in your dreams, bursts of creativity. So have many other great minds. Paul McCartney and Rene Descartes, Salvador Dali, Graham Greene, Gandhi, dozens more. But the difference with lucid dreams is you can plan in advance. You can incubate a dream, pose a problem, summon up a solution, a moment of clarity from your subconscious. When I become lucid in a dream, if I need a particular answer or if I need some guidance, I could just 
scream. Well, you don't have to scream, really, but you, what you have to do is just ask it out loud, whatever question you want to ask, and just wait what happens. That's Natalia, the leader of the Sydney Dreaming Group. She grew up in Latvia, but after university, she yearned to move elsewhere, maybe Australia. She wasn't sure. So she posed the question in a dream. I come to the shore and um, everything is, you know, is really beautiful. Um, it does feel like I'm, you know, in heaven, if you will, because basically I can see three figures approaching me. They, they're wearing all the long white clothes and they come to me with a set of clothes and saying, uh, welcome, we've got this new clothes, they're ready for you. And then I come to the lighthouse and in that moment I hear a voice that's saying that you've got to come, you have to come to Australia. This is where you have to be. And then I wake up. And then a year and a half later when I arrived to Australia and I went to the lighthouse in Watson's Bay, it just clicked. There was exactly that scene that I saw in my dream. And I remember the voice that told me that you have to come to Australia. This is where you are supposed to be. Well, I want to get the transition right I used to play in a band in high school and I took that quite seriously while I was in it. I was a bass player. And it wasn't in the sense that I incubated a dream and wanted to solve something creatively, but when we'd have a bit of dry spells, because it's in your mind when you sleep, it's almost as if it takes the reins and wants to solve the problem for you. Here's another story of inspiration tugging at you hard in the middle of the night. This is Nova, a student in Sydney and a member of the Dreaming Group. So I was lucid in this particular dream where I would just pick up a guitar that wasn't mine, that was this extraordinary guitar that I thought, you can't buy this, this had to have come from somewhere so strange. It was alien almost, and I realised, OK, I'm dreaming. It was a metallic blue, but it, all, it almost as if it held no shape, and although it wasn't plugged into anything, it was just able to make the most fascinating sound. It felt almost as if it didn't come from me. It felt like it was playing itself. So when I woke up, I realized that I could really use this to help myself, to help my playing. So meeting with my band members, I didn't tell them about the dream. It's not something I talk to many people about. But you throw ideas out there. You say, hey, I've been thinking, maybe we can add this sort of sound, you know, add echo or add delay. And they say, yeah, yeah, that's a really good idea. And you sort of play with it and add little fragments of the sound that you dreamed of. Wouldn't it be sweet to have a dream like that? Actually, the dream I'm trying to have is more like Natalia's, those friendly guys in the flowing robes telling her Australia is where she belongs. See, I'm a stranger here myself, an American in Oz. Do I belong here? How long should I stay? No luck with that dream so far. It's all a work in progress. Step two, controlling your dreams. Many people report that they can not only control their own actions in a dream, but control other characters in the dream as well. It's also possible to take control of scary dreams and nightmares and turn them into something much more pleasant. I'm walking down a street and originally I'm nervous because there's all the faces going past me and, I, and I'm staring at their faces, but I think they can tell that I'm staring at them. Like me, Bianca is a beginner at lucid dreaming. She's 19. She says sometimes she feels shy in public, unsure of herself. A lucid dream can give her a burst of confidence. They all seem a bit standoffish. Like, why is she staring at me and a bit paranoid themselves? And then I realize that I'm the one that has control and I smile and a woman will smile. Or I get a bit angry and someone gets a bit angry as well. So I have a bit more control than I think and I'm actually able to change their facial expressions, which gives me a huge sense of power. I mean, it doesn't feel like you're creating these people. It feels like these people are already created and you're altering them or you have power over them. Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! Every time I have a lucid dream, it's very fleeting, so I wake up and I'm very upset that I wake up. You've been dreaming. 
Sometimes the realization that you're in a dream world can be such a shock that you suddenly wake up. It's like you just lost the lottery by one number. <laughs> I just want to return more than anything in the world. Wake up! Am I dreaming? Oh, no. Damn it, I'm still awake. You know, I would just appreciate one little lucid dream. I would like some wise men to just show up and tell me what I should do with the rest of my life. Step three, knowing that you're dreaming. You can train yourself to look out for signs that you're dreaming. Train myself? These are things which would be impossible in real life, such as being able to breathe underwater or fly. Fly. This can be done in the form of actions like pinching yourself or looking at your hands or simply asking the question, Am I awake? 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 I had that dream of being chased again. It was a recurring dream for me for some time. Yeah, I've been here before. Haven't you? I was being chased through the doors, you know, multiple doors, and there's no escape. You kind of go from one room to the other, to the other, to the other, by, like, a gang or mafia or something. Guys, basically, with guns. They were very aggressive, they were very brutal, and they wanted to kill me. That's all I knew. No, actually, Natalia knew one more thing. She knew how to deal with these guys. So I remember when I started practice lucidity, I willed myself to become conscious in the dream. I felt a lot of a lot of fear still, but I just turned around and I and I let this guy approach me. <laughs> and basically what I did is I, I embraced them, I, I hugged them. <laughs> it was it was quite Horrible to do that because I was very, very scared. But since I did that, basically, the figure disappeared. The dream stopped. It never came back. For someone who might be very overwhelmed by terrible nightmares or post-traumatic stress disorder, it might be incredibly useful for them to be able to actually say, I knew I was dreaming. Judith Pickering is a psychoanalyst in Sydney. She uses dreams a lot in her practice. There's something about being able to face something and knowing that you're facing something that you have already experienced, but you're not experiencing it now. It's a trauma that you've already been through and come out the other side of, and that you are safe when you're dreaming. I asked Dr. Pickering about Natalia's dream, about being attacked by bad guys. Oh, a lot of my patients get that one, she says. In fact, I've had that dream too. I turned around and suddenly looked at the person coming in and said to myself, is that really a burglar or something that I'm frightened of having infiltrate my house, as in my psyche? Is this a symbolic intrusion of something frightening and confronting that actually might be helpful to me? and is part of me, a part of me that I'm scared of because it feels like it's very strange and enigmatic. And so having even had that thought in the dream, suddenly I was able to welcome the burglar in and the burglar was like a, um, almost like a lover figure at that point, something I could embrace. There it is again, a late-night tryst with a nightmare. How tempting. How healing to be able to embrace our fears, love them even. But Pickering says a really skilled lucid dreamer could get carried away, could use her dreams to hide from the truth. For example, the truth that the person that they really fancy is not interested in them or isn't even a very nice person. And maybe the dream would reveal that that person's just not interested in them. They don't want to face that truth in waking life and they don't want to face that truth in sleeping life. So let's do a lucid dream and let's make that person love me and really want to marry me and be my knight in shining armour. So I'm going to have the wish fulfilment of what I want occur in my dream. As a therapist, what do you make of that? Is that not healthy? Yes, if it gets in the way of you actually being able to face a painful fact that's going to enable you to move on. But now there are plenty of people who are happy with their dreams as they are non-lucid dreams, 
random and unruly, but revealing in their own way. So why try to control them? I don't totally like the word control. I feel like that's just, you know, your ego loves security and control. It loves to control things. But really, there's none necessarily a, a need for control. That's Thomas Pizel, a lucid dreamer in New York City. And he says you don't always have to choreograph your dreams. Sometimes it's enough just to know you're dreaming, to wander and explore, maybe start a conversation. That's one of the greatest things now for me is speaking to these other dream characters who you know, are autonomous and independent as, as you are. And, you know, it's interesting. Some of these characters walk around and they seem almost in their own little sleepwalking trance. Some of them, you know, you talk to them, you ask them a simple question like, who are you, what are you doing? And sometimes you just get gibberish. You know, it's as if they are dreaming and they're kind of in their own little world. You know, they don't realize what's going on or anything. But then there's all these other characters who seem to be just as conscious as you are. They realize their place in the, in the dream. They actually can sometimes be guides and, and help you understand how things work there. And now here's something that makes a wannabe dreamer really jealous. Thomas thinks he can rendezvous in his dreams with real people, other lucid dreamers who are dreaming at the same time. Think of dreams as a separate space, he says, a space we all travel to. Why shouldn't some of us be able to book the same flight? So I'm writing this book called Oneironautics, uh, subtitle A Field Guide to Lucid Dreaming. And the two people I'm co-authoring the book with set out to kind of, you know, do some experiments with this. Can we get lucid in a dream and meet each other? So we were actually in a, in a cottage doing some rewrites on the book. And right before we were about to go to bed, we talked to each other and said, OK, if we see each other, use that as a trigger to realize that you're dreaming. And as I'm going to sleep, I'm telling myself, I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming. Before I know it, I'm standing in front of uh, Dylan and Jared, and that's my trigger. And instantly I get lucid, I grab both of their hands, and I run towards this big glass window, like a stained glass window you would see in like a church, but it was huge. And I'm running towards this big window, and I just jump right through it and shatter all this glass, and, and we actually land outside in, in this yard. And I turn to Dylan and I say, do you see how absurd this is? We're dreaming right now. And he kind of looked up and he kind of had a glimmer that he understood what I meant. And I said, Dylan, if I flew right now, would this prove to you that, that we're dreaming? And he said something like, sure. So I did and I flew and somehow I ended up falling into some water and that instantly woke me up. So I wake up and we're back in the cottage and uh, Dylan and Jared both wake up as well. And we share our experiences, and I tell them about this big glass window that I jumped through. And instantly, Dylan is just, he's, he's excited to the point where he's like, no way. And he tells me his dream. Dylan's dream wasn't a lucid dream, but in his dream, I had broken this big window. And he just remembers there was this glass everywhere, and it was, a, it was an anxious dream for him because he was worried about how we were going to pay for it and that we would get in trouble for breaking this window. My other uh, writer had kind of a, an odd dream about his grandmother riding a motorcycle, and apparently she crashed her motorcycle in this dream, and it wasn't a lucid dream either. But he just remembers standing on all this broken glass, standing on the middle of a highway. I mean, the fact that we all dreamed about glass shattering and broken glass could have absolutely been a coincidence of some sort. But my question is, you know, if we were all lucid, can we have shared dreams? Can we get people to get lucid and somehow exchange some information that we could bring back to the waking world? 963, 962, 961. Close your eyes. I think tonight I'm going to dream that I'm jumping through a picture window with George Clooney or I'm going to embrace a demon or I'm just going to learn if I should move back to the States all this obsessing about dreams in the middle of the night can make a person feel very lonely but you know what? we are not alone Yeah. 
in every single traditional culture, people paid attention to their dreams. Think about Aboriginal culture. Think about Buddhist culture now. Think about Tibetan culture now. We came across all these ancient um, beliefs about dreams and, and how our ancestors viewed dreaming. They all believe that something, some part of you, whether they called it the soul or, you know, the, the Egyptians called it the Ba, the Chinese called it the Hun, some sort of essence of you, some consciousness, left your body when you physically slept and went to a shared objective place. Lucid dreaming is a, a modern term for a, and a whole series of ancient practices and experiences. Dream scholar Kelly Bokley has written a book about how people relied on their dreams in early civilizations, like the ancient Greeks. For many, many centuries uh, before the birth of Christ and for many centuries after, the Greek healing god Asclepius was the object of tremendous worship throughout the Mediterranean world. And there were shrines and temples uh, devoted to the, the healing god, just glorious places where people would go who were seeking a healing dream from the, the god Asclepius. And, and people would um, practice what we refer to today as dream incubation. They would bathe, they would pray. People who were healed wrote testimonials on the walls of the temples. Did they ever say, you know, I was aware that I was dreaming? I mean, they didn't use that language or, or, or necessarily think in those terms. But the dreams that were generated were hyper-intense and, and, and deeply impactful on people. And they kind of turbocharged their dreaming in a direction that we often describe as lucid. Okay, so um, everyone is going to work with themselves. Kind of try to forget about everyone else and just concentrate on, on yourself. If it helps you to close your eyes, do that. Just do whatever feels natural and whatever feels right. Here we are again, a kind of modern-day Asclepius, a sunny patch of grass in Sydney with a lucid dreaming meetup group. Just as in ancient times, people are learning how to incubate their dreams. Just pick something that at the moment uh, represents kind of an issue that you would like to work with, okay? It could be, again, a physical symptom, you know, a relationship issue. It could be a particular block that you're experiencing. It could be a, a spiritual issue. So by day, I attend these meetups. And at night, I say my little incantations. I'm going to have a lucid dream, and I'm going to remember it in the morning. And I can tell you, I am getting nowhere. I have not had a lucid dream in months. No flying, no sudden burst of insight, no men in flowing robes telling me where I belong. And here's a cruel twist. Everyone I know, friends, colleagues, family members, they are having lucid dreams. And they're telling me about them. I'm dreaming. I'm dreaming. I'm dreaming. Oh, my God, I'm dreaming. Oh, wow. It's a dream. Wake up, darling. Wake up, darling. Wake up, darling. Don't worry if you can't induce a lucid dream on your first attempts. With patience and regular practice, most people can develop the ability to have the lucid dream experience. I'm not worried. Honest. I'm happy for the rest of you. Enjoy yourselves out there. Maybe one night I'll see you in your dreams, soaring above the ocean, kissing someone famous, hugging someone dangerous. Savor the moment and wave to me, won't you? Lucid Dreamers was produced by Neva Grant with sound design by Stephen Tilley for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's 360 Documentaries. Amusement parks have always been places where the stuff of your wildest dreams can, for a fee, be lived out. And no other place has promised this for as long as Coney Island, New York. 
once the biggest amusement area in the world, it boasted three competing parks, one of which was Dreamland. An absolute extravaganza of light, sound, and motion, it went down in flames in 1911. But in our next story, producer Nate DeMeo takes us on one final trip to Dreamland. You could go to Dreamland. You just caught the ferry at 23rd Street or the Battery. Or slog your way through the slow crawl of horse carts and motor cars, heading south on Shell Road in the golden light of a late June afternoon, down to the edge of the Atlantic, where a white city rose up above the brick and ash of Brooklyn. And you could walk through the fake marble gates as the sun went down, and the sea flashed amber and then gray, and Staten Island disappeared into the shadows and the light grew dim enough for you to fool yourself that the marble wasn't fake at all. And then the bulbs blinked on. A million of them, lighting up the night in the largest amusement park in the world, which was a hell of a thing to see, just a few years after you'd seen your first electric light at all. And after you'd spent a 12-hour day in some basement room or some windowless factory floor, stitching sleeves or packing boxes, fitting fingers to gloves by gaslight. It'd be a hell of a thing even now to see dozens of white buildings made to look like French pavilions, Roman fora, Florentine towers, a glow at the edge of the ocean, where you could dance in history's largest ballroom, where you could drink tea in a Japanese garden, where you could sit in an auditorium in bleachers surrounding a vast pool of salt water and watch submarines conduct a fake battle beneath a scale model of the Golden Gate Bridge. You could buy your ticket to Dreamland and take a gondola ride through the canals of Venice, past St. Mark's Square and the Doge's Palace, steal a kiss beneath the bridge's size. You could ride your first escalator, this one to the top of a giant slide, which would send you down, caroming off obstacles like the Plinko board on the Price is Right. If you landed on the right spot, you won a prize. You could take a miniature train ride through a fake Switzerland, or another from New York to California. Or walk the streets of Cairo. Or Paris. In other places, you were never, ever going to go otherwise. Or you could sit on a swing with your friends inside a tiny house, and then feel the swing move and feel yourself flip end over end. And only figure out later on, when you're all laughing over beers, sitting out under the string lights and salt air, that you hadn't moved at all. That it was the tiny house that had flipped end over end around you. You could gawk at a freak show, and at premature babies in a hospital ward, which was a freak show too, but one that happened to be the only place in the world equipped to keep premature babies alive. You could sit and watch them through the glass, alongside their anxious parents. You could see a cast of 2,000 people set fire to a six-story hotel, and watch firefighters put it out, scaling ladders to rescue actors from real danger and catch them in nets as they made panic leaps from fourth-story windows so they can make panic leaps tomorrow night and the next night and the next. You could tour the Lilliputian town where dozens of little people live full-time in a half-sized village, a 15th-century French village, because the indignity of living in a human zoo with modern amenities wasn't enough. You could fly over all of it in a hot air balloon, You could sink below it in a diving bell. You could watch a magician make a woman float right over your head. You could eat a hot dog. They just invented hot dogs. You could see a one-handed lion tamer and chariot races and whirling dervishes and snake dancers. And you could climb into a boat ride called the Gates of Hell until one night, one of those million light bulbs blew and sent a spark that flitted onto paper mache and sent all of Dreamland up in flames and 2,000 firefighters all of them pretend couldn't put Dreamland back together again Dreamland was produced by Nate DeMeo for his podcast The Memory Palace
is light. Sound touches, sound illuminates. And now, before we let you go, we want to announce that the Third Coast Filmless Festival will be held October 19th and 20th at the Old Town School of Folk Music, and passes are now on sale. If you're unfamiliar with the Filmless concept, it's a two-day extravaganza that is unlike anything else you can find in Chicago, or any place else for that matter. Radio fans gather in the dark for themed screenings of unforgettable audio documentaries, plus producer Q&As, workshops, and our annual awards ceremony honoring the winners of the Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. This year's lineup will include Roman Mars of 99% Invisible, Glenn Washington of Snap Judgment, Joe Richmond of Radio Diaries, and Leah Tao of Strangers, just to name a few. Passes are available through our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. And friends, we always sell out. So buy early, buy often. thirdcoastfestival.org. See you there. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our intern is Maya Goldberg-Safer. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation and the Menaki Foundation. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>